My name is Robbie. On my show this morning, I'm going to spend the next hour interviewing some folks behind The Providers, a documentary which is having its world premiere today at the Full Frame Documentary Film Festival here in Durham. The film profiles three healthcare providers in rural New Mexico and the challenges and rewards of their work. I should start by saying why I'm doing this interview. One of the practitioners in the film is a good friend of mine, Dr. Leslie Hayes. Hi. Hello, Leslie. We both grew up in Los Alamos, New Mexico, and went to high school together. I still consider New Mexico my home, and I'm interested in Leslie's work. Leslie is here today uh, with me today, as well as two filmmakers who made this documentary. First, let me introduce Laura Green. She is a documentary director and editor based in San Francisco. She is also a lecturer at Stanford University, California College of the Arts, and a graduate school at, of a journalism at UC Berkeley. She is currently directing Human Conditions, a documentary about crisis in healthcare in rural America. Hello, Laura. Hello. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Anna Moot Levin is a documentary filmmaker in New York City. She has an MFA in documentary film from Stanford University and received her BA in film and sociology from Vassar College. Hello, Anna. Hello. Uh, and finally, my old friend, Dr. Leslie Hayes, who is a physician who works at El Centro Family Health in Española, New Mexico, as a family practitioner. She specializes in family medicine with a specialty in opioid use disorders, specifically with pregnant women and new mothers. She was recognized by the White House in 2016 as one of their champions of change for advancing prevention, treatment, and recovery. Hi again, Leslie. It's been a long time. It has been. It's great to see you. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you guys are here. Thanks for joining me. So it's a, little, a lot different than my normal music show. So. Um, let's just uh, see how this rolls. This is going to be fun. Uh, the film really shows the beauty of New Mexico as a place and the beauty of the culture of the people, too. But, of course, there are challenges. Leslie, would you mind starting us off by talking about your clinic, El Centro Family Health, and the patients you serve? Sure. El Centro Family Health covers much of the northeast quadrant of the state, basically from the Rio Grande east almost to the border. And um, I learned in the film, we cover 22,000 square acres. That's amazing. And square acres, no, square miles. Square miles. miles 22,000 square miles, much bigger. And um, we have, I think, like 25 clinics at this point spread in three different areas. Um, the There are three main hub clinics in Taos, Española, and Las Vegas, which are the bigger cities, and those are under, you know, around 25,000. And then we have many in small communities that are, you know, two to 5,000 people in those communities. Um, and it can be hours um, from many of these small communities to get to a bigger community. So having health care locally is a big deal for a lot of people. Yeah. Did you, are there 10 clinics? Is that oh, what no, is? there's like 25, 25, 25 or 30. Okay, so, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, um, and the film talks about several people in different areas and stuff. Um, there is, uh, let's see, there's Chris. Um, I have the names right here. They were really fascinating people. Yeah, Chris and uh, Matt both work at the Las Vegas Clinic. Right. Um, and then Leslie works at the Española Clinic, and those are two of the bigger clinics. Yeah. The other Las Vegas. Las <laughs> Vegas, New Mexico. Yeah, that's the Las Vegas I always think of. Not the one with all the lights. This is the one that out there in the out there in the Yana. No, yeah. Yeah. Um, the first statistic of the film was really shocking to me. Um, they said last year, 70,000 deaths in rural America could have been prevented with better access to health care. That's 10 times the number of Americans who died in Afghanistan and Iraq wars combined. That's that's shocking. Yeah, I was I was surprised to realize it was quite that high. But it is you see every day people <laughs> it's gotten better since the Affordable Care Act. Um, but. I used to see people dying all the time from lack of health care. So. Yeah. Oh, no. And then when they, that was interesting, too. You were talking about 
uh, was her name Tiffany in the film? Who was she? Uh, she lives on a farm, and her grandfather had was sick, and to get the ambulance there was what forty five minutes or something or an hour. Yeah, she, she says like over an hour, and uh, you know, having been out to Tiffany's house, it's it's really hard to to find, you know, just just literally in terms of you know the roads and and things like that. So it gets quite remote. Yeah, I um don't live nearly as remote as Tiffany did, but I accidentally caught some pumpkin seeds on fire one day and they leapt from the um, pan onto the carpet and set my carpet on fire and it took over 30 minutes for 911 to find my house. Wow. Yeah. And you do you live near Espanola or? I live about 20 minutes south in Pewaukee. So. Oh, in Pewaukee. Okay, cool. Wow. That's, that's a long time. It is. Yeah. Thank goodness the carpet was out by the time they got there. But. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, so, Let's see. So, healthcare in rural America, specifically in El Centro's region, like there's you know um, enormous geographic area. Is this typical in other parts of the United States? And like for you guys as filmmakers, when you were looking to do a documentary like this, what what drew you to New Mexico? Is it is it because New Mexico exemplifies, or is it is it is it representative of healthcare and rural healthcare in, in the United States? Yeah, I think. Um you know, as filmmakers, there's sort of um, two things that we were really looking for, and which is an area that sort of does really um, exemplify the, the challenges mm-hmm. um, in healthcare in rural America, and at the same time that um, shows some of the incredible people that are working within that within those challenges. And so, in this region, we. Um, I, I think that a lot of there are variations in different places and definitely the sort of vastness of the distances are more common in the American West. Right. Um, and the whammy states, the Washington, Wyoming, Alaska, Montana, whammy. Yeah, whammy. <laughs> Idaho, Idaho. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Do you- yeah. And well, we during our research phase, we spoke with people all over the country, including uh, someone in North Carolina. I was just recently reading that 70 out of 80 rural counties in North Carolina are considered medically underserved. So, um, you know, the 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 work that we show in the film um you know, is very exceptional. Um, but I think that the circumstances are happening all over the country. Yeah, that's true. And we, you know, we also have an opioid crisis here in North Carolina as well. And, and I think um, I'm not exactly sure about the uh, how many clinics and stuff there are in North Carolina, but um, we we definitely have a, a big problem. There's a where I work at the school government at UNC. They have an opioid project where they're studying that and trying to get local health uh, local health uh, clinics as well as uh, emergency medical people and county managers and then city managers to sort of coordinate efforts around public health. Um, so it's a big deal here too. Um, that's interesting. So, um, Leslie, could you talk a little bit about federally qualified community health centers? Like, do you know um, the um, and you know? I guess they're out there in rural health to ease the burden on emergency rooms and stuff. And well, they're more out there in rural health to provide people with a primary care provider. And federally qualified health centers, and I don't understand fully the funding behind them, but it's a special designation, and we get a federal grant, and in addition, we get special um, rates from Medicare and Medicaid that enable us to help take care of uh, poor people and um, keep the doors open. For people who don't have insurance, there's a sliding scale. And they can get um, money and lab work on a discount as, or not money, they can get prescriptions and um, 
lab work for less money as well on a discount depending on their income. And the idea is to put them both in underserved areas and then also in areas um, that are so rural that otherwise there would not be able to be a a provider there. So Right. And, um, yeah, that's that's really cool. Um, So when in the film, Matt was talking about how he felt like they were on the front lines. It's almost like it's a war or something like that, you know, Mm -hmm. which is sort of it's odd to me that it would have to be that way around health, you know. But um, but I I think that was a really interesting thing. And you guys also talk about um, there there being a problem of a family disease. And I I thought that was an interesting thing in your film as well. And is that common in rural health? I mean, you know, where like family disease in terms of, I guess, addiction and stuff like that, as well as other things. You want to talk a little bit about that? Well, I think addiction in general is a family disease. Um, And in the community where I practice Espanola, we have had trouble with heroin addiction long before it became a national issue. Right. And um, basically in Espanola, what they think happened was people came back from Vietnam using heroin there, and they just never stopped. And so that's 50 years ago. And so there are many people where it's three or four generations have been using heroin. And if, you know, their children use it and then their grandchildren use it. And, you know, some of the family members are able to stop, but many continue using. And once you've got um, a substance use disorder in the family, what happens is you end up getting trauma because people die of overdoses, people neglect their children, you know, the father's not there because he's yeah. in prison, you know, the mother loses custody of the children because she's still using, and you get so much, we call them ACEs or adverse childhood events, that it just perpetuates it because of the level of trauma in many of the families. Yeah, yeah, that was um, it was an interesting thing. I think you guys touched on a lot of different people in the film. I mean, there's uh, there's, there's a couple of alcoholics and several people who were, had opiate addictions as well. Um, you know, when you were making the film and you were talking to these families, how was it working with the families as filmmakers? Um, I mean, I think in general it was, you know, we felt like overwhelmingly um, kind of welcomed. And I think that's because uh, the... Um, most of the patients in the film trust and have such a wonderful relationship with their healthcare providers, and we were kind of coming in with them. Um, and uh, and yeah, I mean, we we made this film over three years, right. and so we spent a lot of time um, with patients. Um, you know, getting to know them. You know, some patients um, we filmed. 10 or 12 appointments with. Um, so we really tried to follow people over time and get to know them. And I think that that helped um, build trust and and a real meaningful relationship. Yeah, that's great. The um, D- Cherry was one interesting person, too, when she was talking to Chris, who's one of the he's the nurse practitioner in the film. And she was talking about how she really felt she really wanted to talk to him and it really helped her. I mean, just talking to somebody and having somebody care about you is probably really helps. Yeah, you know, I, I thought that was good. That was an interesting angle. I, I think that like we kind of feel like in in its in its heart, if you will, that's really what the film is about, is about the way that human connection within healthcare can make such an incredible difference. And that's not to in any way negate the importance of the actual medicine, because that's incredibly important. But I think that a lot of time people that are marginalized don't have the same access to caring healthcare providers and don't, you know, and um, 
So I think, you know, Chris in particular exemplifies that uh, because he gets to have more time with patients. So he, because of his special program, so he gets to spend that time kind of talking and really engaging. And um, yeah, I think that that's an incredibly helpful part of what he does. Yeah, he was. He seemed really great. I mean, the, he comes across on the film in the film as being just a really genuinely just wonderful person. He is. He's also a giant goofball. Yeah. <laughs> he would be making a ton of jokes if he was sitting here. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I, I think it was. Um, and you know, you have a really good connection to your patients too. It seems, Leslie. You know, you were when I guess it's interesting. I don't really, you know, I don't have any substance abuse disorders or anything. And talking to my physician is always usually pretty much the nuts and bolts of going to a physician. But when you have a problem that could be illegal or it is illegal, and do people, as a physician, do people open up to you about those problems? And you know? They do, and thank goodness for the patient confidentiality. And no kidding. I actually, one of the things that I talk about when I first meet people for this is that, you know, everything they say is confidential. And I go through the, you know, the limitations that if I hear a child is being abused or if they tell me right. they're going to commit suicide, I do need to involve outside people because I don't want to ever hit somebody you know, by surprise on that. Yeah. But I make it very clear. And if there's family members in the room, I will always turn to the family members and I say, I'm not even going to talk to your wife. So she calls me and, and starts to ask me questions. I'm sorry, I'm not going to tell you unless you specifically tell me that it's okay. So Interesting. But yeah, the confidentiality really makes a difference. And I'm always amazed at... There are many things I know about people that I think I don't think anyone else in their life knows that this has happened to them. And it's, interesting. it's a it's a real gift. Sometimes I just feel like, wow, the fact that people are willing to share things like that with me. Yeah, that's that's pretty, pretty incredible. Yeah, there's some of the several of the people in the film, like getting them in a doctor's office to talk about their addiction problems or just even regular health problems. I mean, they must be they must have really trusted you guys. Did you how do you build trust with um, with people like that that you just meet? That you, I mean, does it do they automatically think it's a camera and I'm going to be on film or is it is it more that they want to tell their story? What, what, what do you guys get from that? Yeah, well, we always start out by explaining what our film is about, um, you know, giving them a sense that, you know, really our mission is to try to overall improve the situation in rural healthcare by telling these stories. And so I think that, um, you know, obviously there were some patients that did not want to be filmed, um, which we completely understand yeah. um but um there were definitely uh, as you can see in the film patients that were interested in sharing their stories that understood that the healthcare providers that they were working with were very um exceptional and that you know they they wanted to honor honor those relationships that were were important to them yeah and i think also um you know so much of it is is just about being you know being human <laughs> with other humans yeah exactly it 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 really takes a long time and um actually you know um ignacio and marie you know the older couple who are in the oh, film yeah. i loved ignacio he's i mean he he was just uh the, the most amazing person you know but at one point i think they were so overwhelmed they're like you guys are still here and you know and um you know at spoiler alert but at, at you know at his funeral they you know he's he, he said something about us which we were like oh you know this is like we didn't make that much of you know we, we shouldn't be honored in that way but but i think it it made him uh feel it, it 
it meant a lot to him that somebody wanted to hear his story, if yeah. that makes sense. And that's that's the best, you know, is, is when somebody really has something that they want to share and yeah. you can be the vehicle for that. Well, that's great. Um, so backing up a little bit. So how did you I want to see how you guys got involved in in doing New Mexico? Why, why, why New Mexico and why not other places? And how did you get to meet Leslie and these other characters? Um, well, we spent about six months um, talking to people all around the country involved in rural health care. So we spoke to maybe 50 or 60 different people in different parts of the country um, in areas that were struggling with access to care. Uh, and I have a friend from New Mexico whose mother is involved uh, in health care, and she... Um, referred me to a few people and those referrals led to more referrals and eventually um, we spoke with Matt who is um, the medical director and physician assistant at El Centro um, and we found um, his his passion and mission really compelling um, in terms of growing the next generation of rural healthcare providers and he also shared some of his personal story with us um, on our first phone call. And so we decided to go to New Mexico to do a scout. And um, we ended up meeting Leslie and um, a lot of really wonderful providers um, that work at the El Centro clinics. And originally, we had thought that we might shoot the film in multiple areas of the country. Um, but there were so many really amazing providers and, and fascinating um, stories that we started seeing unfold right away um, in New Mexico that we decided um, to uh, shoot the whole film in northern New Mexico. Yeah, I really like Matt's focus on getting the next generation. There's a there's a thing too in Leslie in um, in New Mexico. You know, a lot of people they say our best talent is leaving, and they all go get, <laughs> get work elsewhere. You don't get paid as much, I'm sure, in in any field really in northern New Mexico. I know that from personal experience. But the um, yeah, I think it's interesting that he was training a lot. Those those just some training sessions he was doing with some young physicians and um, nurse practitioners or whomever, and um, he was talking about them, just saying, "Please come." And, and work in the communities for a while. So you, you visited a lot of those people. What, are a lot of these younger people passionate about this? Are they interested? Is it something they're really struggling for? Um, yeah, uh, I think that there definitely um, are people that we met that are really passionate about it. Um, Melody, who comes in at the end, she's from Espanola. You know, she, yeah, you know Melody, and um, she's just a total rock star. Yeah. Um, but, you know, traditionally, you know, I think what we wanted to show in the film, you know, in addition to sort of these incredible human interactions is some of the structural elements, you know, and the structural elements is that young urban people don't tend to come and stay in rural communities. And mm -hmm. so what Matt's trying to do is he's really trying to get rural people into medicine, you know, because and there's, you know, research, there's studies that show that that's the best way to help solve the rural health care uh, provider shortage. And uh, the folks that he was talking to at New Mexico are sort of part of a program that's focusing on rural health. So, um, you know, there's a lot of hope that programs like that are going to help solve the rural provider shortage because it's it's chronic and ongoing and getting worse. So, yeah. 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 And the younger that you you can 
introduce kids to the idea that they too can be healthcare providers, the better. We weren't able to cover in the film, but Tiffany, the high school student, um, Matt's actually known since elementary school when he he did a he started out this idea in an with an elementary school class and bringing them to learn about um, the medical field, and so. Um, I think the earlier that you can plant that seed, um, the better. Um, but also, we show we show Leslie um, being shadowed by a medical student, um, and so you know the research indicates that that's also really important to include rural rotations in in medical schools um, and expose people um, to to that kind of work because it does have a lot of appeal, um, uh, especially for certain kinds of people from, from those communities, but also it's just, it can be really meaningful to work in a small community because you really see the impact that you have and you can really be part of that community in a different way than in an urban environment. Yeah, it seems to be the people who come from that community tend to stay in that community a little bit longer, too, because of family and that kind of stuff. Well, one issue is that training is mostly done in these big academic centers, and often the big academic centers are very disdainful towards rural providers. At one point when I was in residency, I had a young child with a brain tumor who ended up getting transferred to, I won't use the name, but just the big medical center in the area. And I was down there visiting, so I went in to check on his family. And when I introduced myself to the intern who was taking care of him, she said, oh, we're just about to discuss him on rounds. Do you want to come in and join us? And so I was introduced as the doctor who had taken care of him in the place that he was from. And the medical student who was presenting him, first off, he got a lot of the details of the medical history incorrect, which broke me. But you get to the end, and um, initially uh, the doctor had thought uh, the diagnosis was um, an ear infection, and it ended up being um, a brain tumor. But it wasn't at all immediately obvious. And the doctor is quite good, but the um, medical student got to the end, and he's like, and then the LMD diagnosed an acute otitis media, which is medical way of saying ear infection. And I was like, LMD. And I finally realized it meant local medical doc. And it was a very, you know, disrespectful way. Yeah. And this doctor is quite a good doctor. And, um, and in addition, they had no way of not knowing that I was the doctor who had done this. I mean, they knew that I was the doctor who had taken care of him in the small community. Wow. And it was interesting because I noticed the attending looked over at me and she looked angry as everybody else laughed. And I, I'm hoping she said something to them afterwards. But I was just amazed at that level of disrespect for because rural medicine is hard. It's very, yeah, it very difficult. Very and it's easy to make mistakes because you're out of your, you know, you're taking care of a lot of stuff that in a big city might go to a specialist. And so you're, you're not always going to be quite as on top of things as a specialist is. And many times in the academic centers, they can be very disdainful about that. I'm sure. Well, yeah, now, University of New Mexico has a program. or they, Did they have a program that was specializing on rural health? Um it was more on primary care when I was there. I think okay. that's still their focus is to try and get more primary care providers. Yeah. Okay. Cause I, I seem to remember, uh, well, do you remember Rihanna Sharp? I think she did. She worked out at the Indian Health Service. Oh, I don't think she? I knew. It sounds familiar. She, but. You remember Mrs. Sharp? One of oh, yeah. The English teachers. Uh, she was great. I loved her. Um, her daughter, I believe she went to work 
for the Indian Health Service. Maybe she's listening nice. now, hopefully. But hello, Rihanna. Um, <laughs> I think she might have done some work at UNM where she, she trained for rural health. But okay. I think there is, there is a, there's an angle there. I, I don't remember. I didn't really study health. But. Yeah, there is um, a BAMD program at UNM, um, which try you know which takes kids you know from high school um and sort of fast tracks them to to be mds um and they do have a particular focus on trying to recruit kids from rural communities well actually when i was in med school now that you mentioned it the primary care curriculum which is the program that i did um they required all of us to rotate four months in a rural community so in okay. Las Vegas, actually, was where I was. So. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, and it's interesting too talking about rural health and um, and these clinics and stuff. It's not just that you have to be the family family doctor, but you also have to. It's almost like you have to be a psychiatrist and a social worker and all that other kinds of stuff. There's a lot that goes on there. I think you guys really show that very well in the film. It's that uh, you know you're really having to to talk to people about all that. I mean, as a regular doctor, you have to do that anyways. But there's a lot of other stuff that goes along with that. You know. Yeah. Like family psychology and. You know, I would think, right? Yeah. I'm on this family medicine Facebook group, and they were talking recently. I'm not on the – there's a a main group, which was a bunch of women in medicine. And apparently one of the psychiatrists had posted that, you know, primary care providers should not treat depression. And, you know, many of us were like – what we're going to make them because in our area it's probably six to 12 months to get somebody in with a psychiatrist and we don't have any psychiatrists in my community so for people without good um, transportation which is probably 60 to 70 percent of my patients yeah. driving to santa fe might as well be you know driving to the moon there's no way they're getting to santa fe on a regular basis so if i wasn't treating depression it just wouldn't be getting done yeah, yeah. And that's uh, something that, you know, I think does really differentiate rural health care and away from other underserved medicine in cities and things is that there's such a lack of other resources in many of these communities, social support. Um, and, you know, I, it's funny because Matt said to us one time he, he described New Mexico as the wild, wild west, <laughs> which very much resonated with me. But I think that um, it's also something that we sort of see in terms of the medicine that you guys have to do is that it's so broad ranging and that you have to take on so many things that in a bigger community, there might be more resources to cover. And so that's something that we are consistently amazed with, with all the providers, um, is just how much lands on your plates that you take wonderful care of. Yeah. So you must have found, Leslie, you must have found a substance abuse was a real, um, right when you got up there, it must have been a, a real big issue. And you talked about in the film, you talk about uh, b- primary care treating. Um, you, I forget the quote you, you said, but it's something about how treating substance abuse in primary care was something that wasn't done before. What was it? What did you say? Um, I don't remember exactly, but yeah, for many years there was, and I think, and I love AA, but one of the things in AA is that you have to be an alcoholic and addict to treat an alcoholic and addict. So for many years it gave the medical field an out. It's like, oh, I'm not an alcoholic. I can't help these people. Sorry. Yeah. You know, you'll just have to leave. And that's not at all true. I mean, it, you know, we don't view that in any other field. You don't have to be a diabetic to take care of people with diabetes. You exactly. don't have to. I mean, if you had to have dementia to take care of people with dementia, it'd be real problematic. But yeah. <laughs> um, so 
it's I don't know why for many years in medicine we just had this attitude and when they came out with buprenorphine which is a medication that's used to treat opiate use disorder in some ways it was a game changer because it was the first medication that was really very very effective that we could use to treat um, substance use disorder and there are other treatments um, but this one is so effective and it can only be prescribed by a healthcare provider and when it first came out it could only be prescribed by a physician and um, the community I practice in Espanola for 25 years, we were in the top five in the nation as far as counties with overdose deaths. Yeah. And so it was a huge issue for my patient population. And so I got certified fairly quickly when it came out. And um, it's just it's made a huge difference in treating. And I think it should be part of primary care. Addiction is very, very common. Yeah, it is. And, um, you know, people are say, well, I don't have the training to do the counseling. And I'm like, great, you should not be doing the counseling. You know, we as physicians and nurse practitioners and physician assistants, we don't have the time and we don't have the training to do counseling. But there are people who can do the counseling. But what we can do that nobody else can do is we can prescribe medications. And there are good medications for opiate use disorder. And there are fairly good medications for alcohol use disorder. And we need to make sure we are doing it. And the other thing we need to do is we need to make sure we are identifying these patients. For many, many years, we have not identified these patients. And it makes a huge impact on their health care and on various other aspects of their lives. When I first started prescribing, I always laugh about the easiest way. People always ask, how do you diagnose addiction? And the easiest way is to have an available treatment. And um, people will self-identify. And once I started treating, I was amazed at the number of my patients who came in and said, so I hear you're prescribing Suboxone or buprenorphine. Can I get on it? And I give an example of one guy I had who I'd taken care of him for about three or four years for his diabetes. And he was very smart and had much more education than a lot of my patients. And nonetheless, I couldn't get him to have his sugars under 300. And um, I was mystified by this. And eventually he came in and said, I'm in trouble with Oxycontin. Can you get me on buprenorphine? And within six to 12 months, his sugars were down in the high 100s. I mean, it made a huge difference in his health care overall. And I totally missed the diagnosis. So. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, oh. and that's something that we've seen a lot over the course of us making the film is that, you know, with substance use disorder, it's very hard to address other health conditions um, without addressing that first. Um, and I think that's why, you know, it's it's became such an important part of the film because um, it's just so critical to, to treatment. Yeah, there was that one woman, Mary, who was in bed and she was talking to uh, Chris and he, she was, you know, she's in pain and she's obviously got some major health issues. And but she kept talking about she needed more pain meds. And so there's all these different issues going on at the same time. Yeah. And um, I, I think that there's a, you know, there's a, a couple of things that 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 we r- ran across in the film. And, um, w- you know, one of the things around around that 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 I really felt as somebody that hadn't you know been in a medical setting or seen a lot of this is that um a lot of people that have been prescribed opiates um you know maybe don't understand the full danger you know because it's medicine to them you know and it makes them feel better and so you know what I really appreciated about Chris in that moment was he really took the time to explain from a medical standpoint you know why this was not a good medical idea to you know to sort of he had uh 
started treating her after she'd been put on higher doses by another provider and who's kind of tapering tapering her down a bit um and so i yeah i just i think that it's really um important to keep in in mind you know the way that um that you know i think that it's very easy to sort of stigmatize and and see things in a negative light but to understand that to people that have been prescribed this this is medication and you know and it's something that they sort of think of that way and so we have to kind of shift the way people think about it i don't know how you know you're the yeah. expert <laughs> yeah well i think one problem is that in the short term people feel so much better on these medications and it never occurs to them that there might be long term issues with them and i have one patient who is on quite high doses of opioids still. I've gotten him down from much higher doses. And he has told me many times that he is okay with the risk of death from it because his pain was so severe before. And he says, I realize that these medications may kill me. And I would rather risk that than live the life in pain that I was living before. Wow. And I struggle with that because I'd still like to get him lower. But, um, you know, it it's a balance. So Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, so this is very interesting. But going back to what um, what Matt was doing with the the field and stuff, and he's uh, getting the younger physicians. It was interesting to, to him to talk about how he worked on a farm and knew how to butcher animals with his grandfather. <laughs> and he's doing this. I don't want to give too much of the film away because everybody should go see it today at one twenty in the afternoon. But yes, they should. <laughs> <laughs> but that was fascinating to me. And these these young students who a lot of them probably grew up on a farm knew about you know sort of anatomy from our farm animals and stuff like that. That's an interesting take, you know? Yeah. And I, I mean, what I love so much about that is that, you know, I think that it's trying to sort of uh, what he's trying, what I, you know, I know what Matt's trying to do is he's trying to make medicine seem accessible to people that might think, you know, yeah. again, it's like going to the moon. It's not something that people of their background or their life experience, you know, and so he's trying to say, look, there's skills that you have. And Tiffany, actually, we didn't put this in the film, but she talks about like, you know, the cows getting maggots in their in their legs and having to, you know, like do home surgery on them and just all this crazy stuff that you're like, yeah, that does sound like, like you might be ready for a career in medicine with that kind of background. But, yeah. you know, it's, it, I, I think that's a wonderful thing that like we weren't really expecting. Yeah. yeah that's, that's fascinating. Um, so, and also back to, um, so this, the opioid crisis, I know is a, is a lot of, um, prescription medications and stuff like that. And it's sort of this, this thing I, I've, I've known two people actually have passed away just from this kind of stuff. Um, you know, friends of friends and stuff like that. And, uh, and it's basically, they get a prescription. Is it, is it that the, is there, are there new drugs out nowadays? Like I know fentanyl is a big issue and like there's, there are other kinds of things that sort of lead people down into just really bad addiction and it's is it quicker these days is it um i don't necessarily think it's quicker it was just that it was so widely available for a period of time yeah and um fentanyl is interesting it's available as a medication but that's not the fentanyl that's causing problems the fentanyl that um is causing trouble is actually manufactured in a lab in mexico mostly and brought into the country illegally and the reason that fentanyl has become a big issue is because you get such smaller amounts to have an effect. So if I'm going to dose morphine, people will get maybe one to two milligrams of morphine. If I'm dosing fentanyl, it's 12.5 to 25 micrograms, so roughly a hundredth as much. And um, and so as a result, whereas you'd need to bring 100 pounds of heroin in, because that's roughly the same potency as morphine, you can bring one pound of fentanyl and get basically the same bang for your buck. And so people can bring in much smaller amounts. But then the other issue is you don't know as much what you're using. So if you get heroin and it's got 
a little bit of fentanyl. It's going to be so much more powerful than it would be without the fentanyl. And um, because of that, people are much more likely to die from it. Is it, is it mostly people taking or injecting drug users? Um, um, both. I mean, that's one thing is people tend to think of heroin as... I have heard people say that prescription opiates are bad because they can lead to heroin. And that's one of the things I try and talk about is that prescription opioids by themselves can be just as dangerous as heroin. And people often turn to heroin when they get further along in their addiction because it's much cheaper than prescription opioids. But if you've got the money, you can get yourself in just as much trouble from prescription opioids as you can from heroin. And so um, it's not even that these are necessarily more dangerous. It's just that these are what people turn to because they're cheaper and easier to find on the street. Yeah. There's, um, I have a friend who works in, um, in Northern New Mexico in hospice and she, she travels in rural communities up basically near you. We'll have Mm -hmm. to talk about this later, but she, uh, she noticed uh, one of her biggest problems is she'll have a patient who's on heavy doses of Oxycontin because they're at the end of life and family members will steal the medication. That's another problem that they, she has to deal with. And of course she's a a hospice worker. So she's dealing with grief and family, you know, pain and that kind of stuff. And, uh, just just sort of regular nursing kind of stuff. But yeah, that's one of my basics. If I'm going to prescribe either pain medication or, um, buprenorphine is that people have to have a lockbox, And that's for two reasons. One is that it is so very commonly stolen. And until I instituted this every holiday, I would have somebody come in the following week, just in tears saying, I thought I could trust my brother-in-law cousin, you know, yeah, uh, sister, whoever it might be. And, um, you know, they've had their meds stolen. And then the other reason is that they're extremely dangerous for small children. And yeah. um, I'll quick tell you one story I have, which is the baby is okay. And mom gave me permission to tell this story. But um, one of my patients was taking her medication. The phone rang. She turned away, turned back. And in that time, her two-year-old had picked up the medicine bottle containing her buprenorphine. And she grabbed it out of her hands, counted the pills. The pills were all still in there. And what we assume happened is the baby got a little bit of powder on her fingers and put her fingers in her mouth. And so they watched her for six hours till bedtime. She was fine. They watched. They took her to bed with them that night, and they woke up 12 hours after the ingestion, and she had stopped breathing. They did CPR, called an ambulance, got her to the hospital where she got Narcan, and she's fine. Wow. But, I mean, that baby could have died. So these medications are extremely dangerous for small children, and I... You know, really stress that to parents of the need to watch them carefully and make sure that the kids do not get into the medications. So. That's that's pretty severe. Just yeah. like powder. Terrifying. I mean, it was a tiny amount. And it's really much worse for children than it is for adults. No sure. adult would respond to the medication that way. And we don't know why such a small amount is so des- deadly and also why the delay. I mean, because children often it's hours and hours with buprenorphine before they have an effect. Wow. I have no idea. That's crazy. Um yeah. So um, the one thing, there, uh, switching gears here a little bit, um, the um, Chris and his wife had this really interesting interaction in the film about they were talking about the, the conflicting realities of you know him going to all these these houses in rural New Mexico and dealing with all the whole host of different issues, and then coming back home and and being with his wife and they're you know what were they making a holiday cake or something like that or a pie or something a pie, and, yeah. and, and they're like how do you what did you what were your observations about that about how these practitioners do this and then leslie maybe you can chime in as well i'm, I'm curious how you balance the, your work and life in situations like that like 
Well, one thing I'm going to say is Dave was like, how come they didn't show you talking about all this, those struggles? And I was just like, well, I don't tend to talk about those as much on camera, maybe as Chris does. But because um, Dave's like, you you certainly struggled with all of that as well. And, you know, not having the support. And I mean, yeah. it's, it's hard. And I mean, one thing about northern New Mexico that is challenging is um, uh, for many of us with kids, it's been very hard because we um, didn't end up living in the community um, where I practice. And I don't know a single practitioner in the entire time I've been there who has had their children in the public schools in the community where I work, which is frustrating because you don't get nearly as strong a community if your children are going to school elsewhere. Sure. But the community, the, the schools are just they're not that good academically and they can be right. dangerous in some respects. And so it's very hard to balance it and it helps. I, I'm glad I'm in Northern New Mexico cause I have family there and they really um, came in a lot for us. And yeah. my husband fortunately has a fairly flexible job, but it can be very difficult balancing it. I'm sure. Yeah. It seemed that like Chris was really having some struggles in the film there, especially when the, um, the, the, the program project echo um was the funding was cut at one point i shouldn't give i'm giving a lot of this away i'm sorry i apologize but come the, see the film <laughs> see the real deal um so but there's uh you know there's there's a, a real interesting issue it's just you can you can see it in his face that he's really conflicted about this whole stuff and his wife is as well yeah um so and chris is um you know as as they sort of again t- talk about in the film all the spoilers um but uh you know, I think is so um, consumed with his work. And I think it's really um, a hard thing, for, you know, sort of from what we see to sort of work in an area where the need is endless, you know, because there is sort of no point at which um, you can have done enough. And there's also like, um, you know, Chris would need like 10 social workers and some, you know, food aid and psychiatrists and you know, he he doesn't have all of that, so he he takes it takes it on. And you know, I think for Matt, um, who also actually um, you know has has had um, similar struggles, but is very much of the community. And you know, um, I don't know how different things are in the Las Vegas and Española side, but you know, his kids um, go to the local school, and his wife's a school teacher actually at the school, and oh, so wow. he's so so embedded in in the community. And I think that um, there's you know a, th- that it's very hard being a little outside the community and it's also very hard being so embedded in the community just that when you're in a place with very high need um i i you know i think it's it's hard i don't know if you have yeah yeah and we didn't um cover it in the film but leslie also does deliveries and she's one of very few doctors left in the community um doing delivering babies and therefore right you're on call Every other day? No, every third. Every third day. Um, But, you know, that obviously takes a real toll on you. Um, But that's that's a whole other film, the the deliveries and the OB situation in in rural communities is um, a struggle. Actually, in, in Las Vegas, they closed their OB wing over the course of us making the film. Um, and so people had to go all the way to Stan- Santa Fe to deliver. Um, Which is close to it's nearly 45-minute drive. Hour. Oh, Las Vegas, it's an hour. To, yeah. yeah, to Las Vegas to Santa Fe. An hour going the New Mexico speed limit, which is 75 miles an hour. Yeah, um, yeah it's only 30 minutes from my house to... I ended up delivering in Santa Fe for my second one. And um, 
I was really not that far in labor with my son, I thought, when we left. And my bag of waters broke at Opera Hill Road. And I thought I was going to deliver in the car. My poor husband, I screamed for 20 minutes solid as we um, drove into Santa Fe and uh, delivered him 20 minutes after we got there. But uh, wow. So. Yeah. Oh, I I just I have to jump in with one other thing about the the broader question, which was that um, you know, we showed the film to a friend who's a who's a first year nurse practitioner in a in a urban underserved community, um, but she said. You know, I really loved your film, but the only problem is like they make it look so easy. It's it's so much harder than that. And you know, I think one thing that that we didn't capture, but is that uh, Matt, Chris, and Leslie have all been at this for a long time, and they're really, really good at what they do. And um, and I think that it is actually in some way it even looks it even looks easier in the film than it actually is because when we talk to the young providers that are just learning, it's it's a really tough job. Yeah. And you guys also chose the the scenes where I looked better. You didn't you didn't show the ones where I was like, that patient was not very happy with me. <laughs> well, I'm I'm sure you have to have just tons of difficult conversations every day with people about all kinds of health issues. Yeah, you know. And then you got the other issue of being in a rural health clinic. So you know, that's that. Wow, that's that's fascinating. Um, yeah. So you guys had. Um, let's see. Um, yeah, there's all kinds of things I want to ask, but uh, I kind of want to keep it focused. But the um, so, how long does it take as a practitioner to where you get fully like vested in the community, where people kind of trust you? Is it immediate as a as a doctor or as a um, nurse? Or? I would say it. You know, it it depends on the patients. There are certainly patients who trusted me immediately, and but I would say by two to five years, people were pretty comfortable with me. And actually, that's an issue when we get new providers in that often they're not very busy initially. And as I'm, you know, swapped and I'm looking in and see them reading novels at their desk, it can get a little frustrating. Sure. But um, yeah, it it takes a while for. Um, you know, people to know you're there and, and trust you. So. Yeah. Well, I guess it's probably word of mouth too. A lot of people, family trust yeah. you. And then another family member comes to talk to you and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. That's good. And the other thing is, um, for a new provider, um, anytime there's a new provider, everybody's like, huh, I wonder if this person will prescribe a lot of opiates for me. Sure. So they get a lot of people coming in who really are not necessarily there. Um, to establish healthcare, but just to try and get um, opiates, and that can be very frustrating as a new provider. Uh, yeah, I've, I've heard that's common around the country. I was going to say it's of... not just in my area; it's everywhere when you are a new provider. So yeah, getting the prescriptions, and you guys even show that a little bit in the documentary too. So that was um, it's fascinating. Yeah, and we I'll just say that we you know people talk about the um, doc doctor shopping, um, but uh, I haven't heard as much said about doctor firing, which is also something that comes up with. Patients will say that they they fired their doctor, yeah. Um, and it's interesting because sometimes it's around opiate issues. But I think also that there's patients that are particularly sensitive to whether they sort of feel respected, you know, and heard. And so something that was really important to us is that the film really features providers that patients, if you know, uh, feel really connected to and feel like really hear and respect their concerns. So there definitely I think are things around opiates, but also you know, sort of learning how to. Um, talk to people in a particular community in a way that they find kind of accessible. And that may be more like what the two to five years. Yeah. Um, yeah. And some, some people, patients just open up to right away and some takes a while. The book, slow medicine. One thing she said that I thought was interesting was she said, um, eventually 
patients and doctors sort of find each other. So if you're a patient who wants a lot of tests done and wants every you know possible um, medication, you're going to find the doctor who does that. Whereas if you're a patient who wants a doctor who's very hands-off and doesn't worry a lot about stuff, you're going to also find that kind of doctor. And I thought that was interesting. So Yeah. Yeah. The um, another thing that came through in the film is that a lot of the, the rapport that you guys have with your patients, um, Chris was, and, and Matt especially were hilarious. Like with Matt with this older gentleman Ignacio, and he would joke with him like he was like a, like an uncle or a, a grandfather or something like that. It was it was really neat, and that's part of New Mexico too, which I really appreciate is that sense of humor that people have. It's a real down to earth sense of humor, very honest, and um, that, I thought that was you guys really captured that really well. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's great. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we show a lot of heaviness and darkness um, in the film and in the community. And it was really important to us to also show the lightness. And, you know, I I think that that theme of the duality of the the darkness and the light was something we were always thinking about while making this film. Yeah, and it's true. The, the the photography, the cinematography you guys had there with the beautiful scenes of New Mexico and driving through, and you know, in a lot of rural Americas, it's gorgeous, you know. So you, but then you have this health clinic and these people living in trailers, and um, you know, sometimes in really pretty pretty bad living situations, or sometimes normal. And it's, it was a really interesting thing to see. Yeah, I thought of that with the movie Wind River this year. I don't know if you guys saw that. I've seen it yet? Oh, it was really good. But it was you know these amazing landscapes coupled with you know, very devastating uh, conditions. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's see. So, um, um, I think that this has been really great to talk to you guys. So the film today is called The Providers. It's, it's going to be at the Full Frame Film Festival, uh, docu- Full Frame Documentary Film Festival today at one twenty. And you guys are going to have a question and answer afterwards as well? We will. Yes, with, yes um, we will be there. And all, all uh, Dr. Hayes, sorry, Dr. Leslie Hayes, <laughs> and um, you don't need to check my blood pressure, and um, and, and uh, Chris Rugi and Matt Probst uh, and Annie Rugi, who's also a nurse midwife at the clinic, uh, will all be there. Oh, they're going to be there they're as well? Yeah. going to be there. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. That's really great. I'm glad yeah. you guys got him to come. Yes, we are too. We're, wow. Yeah. That's really great. I feel like I know those guys. So I should tell them hi for me. <laughs> 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 um, yeah. So anything else you want to talk about, Leslie, about your clinic or anything like that? I mean, the, um, you know, uh, what, how many patients do you see a day or how many patients come through there? Is it sort of uh, all of Espanola? Is it like outside Espanola? It's or? in Espanola. And actually, if you don't mind, the thing I would love to talk about would be just a little bit about um, neonatal opioid withdrawal. Sure. It's one of my areas of passion. You you actually have a, a um, uh, pregnant woman in the film who... Yes. Has, um, and um, it's interesting because somehow neonatal opioid withdrawal has become sort of a touchstone and, oh, you know, these women are doing terrible things. And first off, I want to say the videos you see on Facebook, we almost never have babies nearly that severe. Mm-hmm. And um, and also, um, one of my personal things is that these are not addicted newborns. It makes me crazy when I hear that. Um, first off, babies just do not have the behavioral capacity to be addicts. You know, they're addic- babies who are in withdrawal. They are not babies who are addicted. Um, but beyond that, I feel like calling them addicted newborns really stigmatizing stigmatizes yeah. them. And I was doing a community presentation once. 
And I mentioned this. And one of the women there um, who wanted to be a support worker for the organization where I was speaking um, had brought her 11-year-old and 2-year-old because she didn't have babysitting. And the, she said the 11-year-old ended up sitting in and listening, and she had you know thought he would be off you know showing videos to the 2-year-old or something. And um, afterwards, he apparently told his mother... Um, I always thought I was an addict because people always told me I was born addicted to drugs. And now I'm realizing I was not an addict. I was just in withdrawal. And I want to go work hard in school so that I can become a counselor and help other people who have used drugs. And I just, I was like, to to this day, that's my favorite thing I've ever done in medicine is, you know, the fact that I made this difference in this 11-year-old's life and how he viewed himself. But I think it also is very stigmatizing to the moms. And it makes the mothers feel like, you know, they're not worthy. They're bad people because this happened to their baby. And it can often mean that women do not get on treatment because the treatments, both buprenorphine and methadone, can cause withdrawal as well. And my feeling is withdrawal is very treatable. And like I said, we almost never see babies at the level you see them in the the videos I see on Facebook. (laughs) Those are the worst case scenarios. I mean, and especially we at our facility... And Yale and Dartmouth have both come out with studies recently saying this is the best way to do it. We have the babies in the room with mom. We have the moms, you know, holding them all the time. We encourage them to breastfeed if they're not actively using. We keep the babies swaddled. We keep the rooms dark. We keep the rooms quiet. And that makes a huge difference. And many of our babies do not need medications at all. And those that do need much less medication than they do in places where the babies all go into a bright, loud neonatal intensive care unit. So taking care of these babies properly and making sure we're supporting the the moms because too often we just kind of view you know we're the focus is on the baby but we're realizing now we really need to focus on the dyad and make sure that the mom and baby both get the support and care that they need for this so yeah i think that's stigma is a real problem in in healthcare. i would i would guess because you know a lot of people that are addicts they're seen as junkies there's all kinds of you know and also alcoholics too i think there's you know those stigma will prevent people from getting care and it's interesting because you know people always tell me they don't like working with these patients and i'm reminded of something i learned in medical school i was listening to david smith who was um early pioneer in addiction in San Francisco. And he said, you know, if we only saw breast cancer after it had metastasized, we would find breast cancer a very, very difficult disease to treat. But because we're doing mammograms and breast exams, we're catching it early. And we think of breast cancer as quite a treatable disease. And it's the same thing with addiction. We are not diagnosing addiction until patients come in with an overdose or with a severe abscess. And at that point, their lives are so far out of control that it's very, very hard to treat them. They don't have friends. They don't have a support system. And their addiction is so far. Whereas if we catch people earlier, it is much, much easier to get them treatment. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting point. I think that's true. Wow. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's really interesting. The... Um so when you um, when you guys were doing the filming and stuff like that, did you did you look at any of the? Um, I know we were talking a little bit earlier about how um, police cars in New Mexico have Narcan, and my wife was very interested in that because of her work with harm reduction. But um, that that's a really interesting and really groundbreaking thing that New Mexico did. Did you guys um, did you guys look? Do any investigation into police or anything like that? And their response, or did you guys pretty much just focus on the providers? Um, we, you know, the sort of. Sc- <laughs> 
uh, we feel like we filled the film all the way to the seams and we couldn't fit in <laughs> any more other things. Um, but we definitely actually at one point, Matt was talking to the police about getting Narcan into police units in Las Vegas. And so we were sort of aware of that and, you know, think that it's so important and, you know, so great because, you know, definitely uh, physicians can give out prescriptions for Narcan. But first responders, you know, um, I, you know, again, in rural communities may take them longer to get there. So it's good for people, yeah. you know, who do have substance use disorder to have prescriptions for Narcan so that they can have the medication themselves. Um, <clears throat> but I think that, you know, we're, we read about a lot of really interesting things that people are doing. Yeah. Uh, yes. And in the film, Leslie mentions that she sent her daughter off to college with Narcan. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was... Yeah. That was a, that was amazing. I thought <laughs> so, that was great. Yeah, the Surgeon General came out with a statement yesterday that I guess it was the first like I don't know what the level of the statement was, but it was the first one that had been made by the Surgeon General since 2005, but saying more people should carry Narcan. So I sent it to my family saying, Good. you know, we're trendsetters. We're way ahead of the curve here because all of my family carries Narcan. So. <laughs> so are your kids studying medicine? No. no. The, my daughter has absolutely no interest because she does not want to deal with IVs ever. She, IVs make her very queasy. And oh, really? um, my son wants to be a computer geek like his dad. So. Okay. Good. <laughs> oh, and grandmother too, right? She was yes. A computer nerd as I I recall mm -hmm. so good okay well let me see we only got a couple minutes left anything you guys want to and so so tell me what you guys are working on in the future um i know this is going to be a really exciting time for you to showcase the film today this is the grand opening or premiere of your film mm -hmm. and um that's great um good luck with everything today that's uh, with the providers at 120 today at the full frame documentary film festival and then so what else on the horizon do you have coming up i'm really interested in your work um laura i think you um worked on let me see here. Um, you, you've done some human conditions, I think. Are you working on that now? That's actually this film, but before we retitled it, my oh, website's really? very out of date. I apologize. <laughs> you need to update your um, website then. <laughs> yeah, but I'm uh, I'm working on. I'm the editor right now on. Um, uh, a, a documentary web series called The F Word, which is about fostering to adopt. Oh, good. Um, awesome. Yeah, and so um, that's that's really great. We're actually going into into season two, and it's a it's a. a it's available on the World Wide Web. Um, and um, the next project is top secret. So, okay. you know, if we told you, we'd have to kill you. Okay. Well, I want to stay alive. Yeah. But yeah. we're, yeah. we're – No, my next project is sleeping for like at least a month before I start anything else. Especially yeah. after this early morning interview. Thank you, by the way. <laughs> but, yeah, this is our world premiere. So it's the very beginning of our festival run. So we're hoping to screen the film at festivals over the next year or so. And then the film is going to be broadcast nationally on public television um, on PBS. Um, and we're also um, going to be doing an, an outreach educational campaign, bringing the film to medical institutions that, that train students going into the medical fields. That's fantastic. That's a, that's a really great idea. I like that. And yes, follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at uh, The Providers Doc okay. to... Uh, stay stay posted yeah that's gonna be great oh, and I'm, I'm so glad that the uh that chris and matt are are here as well in durham that's great yes that's really it's fantastic gonna be really fun um so you also um anna you worked in, with still in motion is about parkinson's disease and are you, are you interested in health issues in in documentary yeah yeah that's um 
really, I mean, that's part, a big part of why Laura and I teamed up is we're both really interested in medical issues. And yes, I had made a short documentary about um, a man with um, Parkinson's and I, one of my other shorts was about um, a boy on the autism spectrum. Yeah. Um, Laura and I are both the, the children of healthcare providers. <laughs> and Watch so out, Leslie. Oh, really? We, <laughs> they're they're all, all in town today for the screening as well. Um, oh, that's great. <laughs> so um, we, you know, neither of us went into the medical fields ourselves, but I think that we were instilled with a, a fascination with um, medicine and how how that affects people's lives. Well, that's great. I think uh, that, that your film was very moving. I really, really appreciate you guys doing this film. It was really great. And it was wonderful to see Leslie. And mm -hmm. thank you for doing all the work you do. Thank you. In your community. And it's really great to see you doing so well. And so, um, so thank you very much to uh, Dr. Leslie Hayes and to Laura Green and Anna Moot Levin. Thank you. Con continued success on all your documentaries and have a great time here in Durham. Hope you have a great time in the festival. Good luck with everything. Thank you so thank much. You. Okay. This is WXU. Durham. My name is Robbie. Thanks a lot for listening. And thank you, Virgilia, for helping out in the studio today as well. And that signs off for the show. Thank you very much. This is WXDU Durham.